Brothers and sisters, friends and comrades, this is the PRC Show. I am your host, Paul Cooley, and thank you for listening. But actually, it is reading Parting the Waters, episode 011. My God, it's we're now in double digits. This is the second show in double digits. We're very excited. And I'm here with uh, my friend Gabe, and we are more than halfway through the book, um, technically with the actual content of it but not tech but not with the actually book length itself if you consider the appendices and all that stuff so we're getting to the halfway part so i thought it would be a good time to do some recapping we're not going to do teasers and all that funny stuff we did before um before we get into recapping though uh gabe how are you doing i'm doing great glad to be here okay good way um we have some letters and i think you know i don't think we did letters last time but we have to read these letters because it's going to influence the show so uh this is a letter from this guy henry in kalamazoo michigan he says paul and gabe i like the show but isn't branch neglecting to include the northern white liberals especially those from cleveland and kalamazoo and other parts of the north if it wasn't for them there would have been no civil rights movement is that not correct I don't know, Henry. Have you been listening to the show? My God. Um, I mean, what would you say the percentage of white people, um, white Northerners, is involved in this movement so far? Less than 5%, probably. It's, it's a smattering. Or maybe 20 It's a the, smattering. With the freedom, freedom rides. Okay. Right. Um, but I think that's a good question because a lot of people think it was black people and white people kind of working together. And some people might think it was more a heavy lift from the people up north. But clearly, no. <laughs> well... I mean, if we could take stock as to where we are right now, most of the white people who have shown up are not really traditional liberals, right? That small group of white people who are involved in this so far are either people on the left or people from the left or people who are moral, religious um, outliers. Oh, sh- for sure. Shall we say? Absolutely. And I think that we're getting to the point where the civil rights movement is entering the public national discussion and the Kennedy administration is engaging with it. So I think it's probably true that more and more people who would think of themselves broadly as liberal, not as radicals religiously or, or politically, will start to be really paying attention. But I don't think there are very many real true blue I think bleeding Henry, heart liberals yet. Yeah, and Henry might be referring to... Uh, SDS, I don't know, people, white college kids of the new left. Maybe that's who Henry's talking about. Um, and and But that hasn't really taken shape yet, right? Like, we're going to meet um, some of the people who were involved in the SDS soon. But the, the Vietnam War hasn't taken shape yet, right. right? Like, this is still too early for that. Way too early for that. So Hold Henry, your horses, Henry. Hold your horses. And we are not... SDS is actually not even a footnote... Or in the appendices, in the index. Appendices, index. Next letter is, this is from Kate in Erie. And she says, I have been a loyal listener since episode 001. And while I truly enjoy every episode, especially the musical breaks and the handsome, smooth voice of Paul, I think you guys need signposts. Signposts for us listeners. I'm trying to not get upset, but sometimes I get lost and need a refresher on the following. Year, time in history, brief bio of characters previously mentioned, brief bio on organizations and who they are associated with, and really just a little more explanation peppered in so I don't feel so lost all the time. I really love the show, 
and trying not to listen to so much sports talk and NPR. So thanks for producing this. And keep them coming, Kate and Erie PA. Well, I think she does make a good point. And I this... mean, Kate from Erie sounds like she's just right on. <laughs> I, I think she makes a good point in the sense of even when you're reading this book, sometimes you have to go back because there's so many characters and different things going on that it, again, I'm complaining about Branch, but, you know, the book can't be 2,000 words. So we're going to try to do a little better signposting, uh, uh, Kate, and I do appreciate your your feedback. And thanks for being a loyal listener, and thanks for saying that I have a handsome voice. The next uh, last letter is, this is from Edith in Munhall, PA. People, uh, Munhall, PA is uh, kind of a little borough next to Pittsburgh. Really should be incorporated into Pittsburgh, and I do support its annexation. Sorry for the controversy. <laughs> little... little uh... Uh, shout out to Vladimir Putin there. <laughs> yeah, right. So I think the last episode had really sucked. I can't wait for you guys to talk about the Black Panthers and SDS. I'm not into these preachers. I'm really into the real activists and leaders like the Black Panthers and SDS. They were awesome. <laughs> this is kind of like Henry's thing. I think we already addressed this, but uh, just hold your horses. Those characters will probably appear in um, episode uh, 025, maybe? I don't know. But the point is, with the first and second, le third letter here, is that this early movement in the 50s, and now let's get into some recapping, is really led by, um, you know, black preachers, black people in the South, with a little bit of smattering or peppering in of, of some... And seamstresses and sleeping car porters. Yeah, no, just regular and, folks. Regular right. folks that are not radical folks, you know? So just to recap where we are, because we're going to get into chapter 13. Um, my God, what's chapter 13 called? I got a unprepared. It is called um, Moses and Macomb, King in Kansas City. And this is a chapter that really does focus on Bob Moses. So if you're into Bob Moses, you're going to love this chapter. And we do get a more fuller picture of him to some degree. And unfortunately, there's more violence. But we're coming out of the Freedom Rides. The Freedom Rides have been going on all summer. But let's just recap. I'm getting, not taking uh, Kate's uh, advice here. So it's 1961. Kennedy has been the president for eight months. We are now going to enter into this voting rights effort. And at the end of our last episode, if you didn't know history... And you're just reading this book. Like, I get trapped into this where I was thinking the Kennedys want all this activism to go away. They support civil rights. They want the black vote. They want to help support registering people to vote. And they think that is the more, uh, the, the less violent, the, the better path to go forward. And when you're reading the book, you're thinking, um, I was thinking, well, that's there's merit in that. Yeah, just quietly do some voter registration, like doors, you know, doing, and just get some people to vote. Like, why do you have to have these bombastic, maximal confrontation, getting right into the South and kind of shoving it down their face that they're wrong and they're, you know, uh, racist and this is bad? Don't do that. Just register people to vote. That's going to be the better path. And it's funny to think about that because. They're wrong. <laughs> and But when you're reading it, you think like, okay, yeah, they could just do that quietly. Why can't they do it quietly? Well, we're going to find out. So let's get into this. Enough of my pontificating. Anything you want to say before you get, in, we get into this? Let's go for it. Okay. 
So Bob Moses in Macomb, Mississippi. It's August 1961. The Freedom Rides are kind of running out of steam. Macomb, Mississippi is if you went to Chicago and you like went straight kind of down and maybe a, about a centimeter over. It's at the very bottom if you're looking at a map. It's um, north of Baton Rouge and uh, Louis, um, New Orleans. So it's kind of deep in Mississippi there. And so we are introduced right away to an E.D. Nixon-type character, C.C. Bryan. He's a Macomb, Mississippi. Uh, he's a practical, plain-spoken leader in the model of E.D. Nixon. Uh, if you remember from M- the Montgomery um, bus boycott, he was the president of the local NAACP, NAACP Pike chapter, which I think Nixon was a president or a member. He was a railroad man just like Nixon, and he drew his paycheck from the from Chicago. He operated a loading crane. He was also a high official in the all-Negro Freemasons, which is interesting. This allowed Bob Moses... So Bob Moses meets up with him. He lends his support. Bob Moses... Um, he lets him use his all-Negro Masonic temple second floor for voter registration school. So Moses... Just a Pause, pause for a second. I thought this guy was really interesting. And I think that you're right to connect him to Edie Nixon. And I think he's a kind of archetype of a certain kind of... I'm going to say this and it's going to sound... Um, Condescending. Co- no, it's going, to, <laughs> it's going to sound negative, but I actually mean it in the opposite way. I mean it in a literal way. He's like a working class aristocrat. He really is the best of a certain kind of person who has achieved a, a good job and hard work, but also keeps becoming a leader in sort of every aspect of life around him, mm-hmm. uh, from he, he, the NAACP to the um, Masonic Lodge. He is, and, and he's the kind of person who, if, if he was in Chicago, he would be um, a Democratic precinct chairman and, and right. he, he would be in the seal workers or the meatpacking workers. It, it just, um, in a highly racialized and oppressive society, there are people like this who become leaders everywhere anyway. Right. And it's, it's really inspiring and it totally makes sense that these are the kind of people who when they connect with or meet someone like uh, Moses understand the potential of what can happen. Well put, well put. So Moses is knocking on doors uh, in August. He's telling folks um, he was C.C. Bryan's voter registration man. He was already an expert in Mississippi's arcane registration laws, which required applicants to interpret a section of the state constitution to the satisfaction of uh, the county registrar. The fear of entering a registrar's office was a big barrier to folks. We will see why. Moses addressed these issues as his night, at the night classes at the Masonic Temple. Things were going slow, but... This is kind of okay for Bob Moses. He's plugging along. And the Pike County's racial barometer, as Branch writes, was sensitive, sensitive enough that the appearance of 16 black folks in the courthouse on three successive days was a development worthy of a story in the Macomb Enterprise Journal. Oh, what are these guys doing, you know? This piqued the interest of local segregationists and blacks who started showing up at Moses' classes. They asked him to head to the rural wilderness of Amite and Walthall counties. I, I, I want to just grab onto that um, mm-hmm. newspaper coverage that um, when it gets registered in the paper that they cover that this is mm-hmm. happening, um, it sort of sets multiple clocks running, right? It's, it's spreading the word um, among white people mm-hmm. and segregationists that there's a threat, but it's also magnifying 
it's to, a free advertisement to, to black people that there's an opportunity to do mm-hmm. something and make change. And so um, it made me think about organizing campaigns with workers in the labor movement and how when something goes from being quiet and secretive to public and out loud, it, it sort of cuts both ways yeah. at the same time. Right. Management starts reacting and more workers find out about what's going on. So he thought it was too dangerous to go out to these counties, but he couldn't bring himself to say no. So uh, it took some time to get a foothold, but he ended up meeting with probably somebody, well, another kind of quiet leader, farmer named E.W. Steptoe. E.W. Steptoe uh, is a wife with nine kids. He's a leader in the Amite County uh, NAACP. Two years prior, the sheriff confiscated his membership roles. Oh, what... What a jerk. <laughs> so here's the scene. Let's go to this first scene with Moses trying to register people to vote. So that, we're going to the registrar's that, office. That was a, a chilling uh, moment for me. It, it, it's, again, it's one of these little details which... Um, oh, just the, the, the throwaway line of, oh, by the way, he already had interaction with the sheriff and took all his like membership Well, roles. that a free, democratic, civil society organization can cease to exist because the sheriff comes and takes the physical records of the organization and says you're out of business right and I, I i that was a good little tidbit highlight he didn't really go into it but it's just like jesus like you can't do this yeah right. so moses and two folks go to register to vote as they're going there they pass a beautiful large confederate memorial statue actually maybe it was probably ugly the county registrar asked them rather sternly why they're there the people with moses are scared they're afraid to speak moses says they would like to register to vote. The registrar, am I saying that word right? Registrar? Yes. Questions Moses and tells them to wait. Then curious officials uh, came by for silent looks at the oddities who were making themselves chief topics of the day's conversation, uh, Branch writes. Sheriffs, deputies, clerks from the tax office, an examiner um, from the driver's license bureau, a Mississippi Highway Patrolman saunters in and takes a seat, just sitting there looking at them. Six hours go by. They escape the tension of the courthouse, just leave. The three volunteers with Moses knew they were going to be rejected as voters, um, but they were kind of excited that they didn't get beat up or anything happened, like they were in there. They had like a feeling of like, okay, well, we were in there and we caused them, but you know, we're all right. So they were feeling good. They're going back to Macomb. I think it's Steptoes. And uh, wrong, don't feel good about it because it's not a coincidence that the person following them is the highway patrolman. So they're going, driving back. They try to turn off side roads. They keep going off different roads. Finally, the patrolman's getting closer and closer. He turns his flashers on and pulls them over in Macomb. Moses is placed under arrest. It's like, this is just so, I just want to scream. Okay, so he's charged with interfering with, with an officer in the discharge of his duties. I mean, just complete BS. Moses says he was prepared to stay in trial. He fished out, this is a fun scene, actually. I want to see this portrayed in a movie. He fished out his emergency contact, who was John Doerr, who he had never spoken to. So, if I could be a better actor. He amplifies his instructions to the operator. Washington, D.C., please. United States Department of Justice. This is the tiny little moment where he's like kind of flexing his muscle and he's a lot bigger than these toad cockroach pieces of S. Um, <laughs> so he gets Dora on the phone like magically and he gave a clinical neutral detail of the day's events. 
the justice of the the justice of the peace found Moses guilty that night and fined him with fifty bucks. But he's like, listen, I'll reduce. It. Like, think he's a little bit. Oh, the justice department's involved. He reduces it to five dollars. Probably concerned about the justice department being involved. And uh, what does Moses do? He says, uh, "I that's an unjust that's an unjust fine. I'm not paying that fine, sir." So he sends him to jail. And then, so he's in jail. The NAACP lawyers come down and bails him out. And um, Moses is not happy about that. <laughs> he's not happy about being bailed out. And the NAACP lawyers are like, Jesus, it's sticking the mud. Like, come on, we just got you out of jail. This is a good thing. And of um, course, the NAACP is not thrilled that they're having to spend their scarce money getting someone out of jail who's been put in jail because of a voter registration campaign that's not theirs and they didn't approve in the first place, which they thought might be risky. And now they're having to step in to help the guy. And he's like, w- w- it may have been the wrong moral decision for you to bail me out in the first place. Yeah, this, this is the first nonviolent little episode of this chapter. Um, and so Moses goes back to the Masonic Temple he finds that there's a dozen like freedom writers there. They've come from Jackson. Several were just leaving a fractious debate at Highlander Folk School. Uh, Macomb's kind of becoming the, the the new summer magnet to go to. The youth are excited. Moses is not so much. And this is where I know you kind of said before Moses seems a little strange, and it really in this chapter he comes across as just a different type of person. So he misses this loud meeting with Charles Sherrod that's given speeches, and he goes to Steptoe's farm to try to do damage control about the three volunteers being mistreated and then and him being arrested. Steptoe tells them, that, like, hey, listen, I hear, like, the White Citizen Council meeting are discussing what you did today. Um, okay, now this next name. Oh, okay. Steptoe lives next to E.H. E. Hurst. And I would like to do a podcast called Villains of History because he is clearly a villain of history. Um, we'll explain why shortly. He is a, he's a Mississippi state representative. Hearst was a pillar of segregation. Uh, but the real threat was another villain of history. His daughter's husband, Billy Jack Caston. Billy Jack Caston had a reputation as a wild, violent ruffian. He ends up becoming a state trooper, by the way. Dies in 2004, never having answered for his crimes, just so you know. Um, I tried to reach out to his family. Never, it didn't work. Steptoe, uh, he was like, Bob, you need to go deep into the woods, Moses. You need to go deep into the woods of this Baptist church. There's a, there's a one-room Baptist church. Hold your registration classes there. Like, kind of get a little bit further out of town. So only, so he, he does that. Only the, uh, kind of the boldest, um, black folks show up. Bo- Moses does not pressure them to register, but he does get a couple folks to go down with him. He gets Curtis Dawson and a guy named Preacher Knox. Moses and Steptoe talk about that they're a little worried about Dawson because he was prone to like, I love love this characterization because we all know people like that. He was prone to random enthusiasm and endorsements of all different types of opinions and kind of flighty. Yeah, that's a good idea. Oh, yeah, yeah, we should do that. Yeah, oh, sure, whatever. Just, you know, um, maybe I'm like that sometimes. Who knows? Okay. Never, never. <laughs> So, okay, here we go. This is another... Oh, God. Okay, so... Any thoughts on what's going on here, Gabe? The tension's kind of... The tension is building. So, this is the second attempt. He... Hold on. Okay, we're going to get into some assault. So, it's 
August 29th, Moses, Dawson, and Knox go to the courthouse, and Dawson recognizes Billy Jack Caston. He's the sheriff's son, of course. Billy hollers out and asks Moses why he's doing here. And Moses says, oh, we're just going to the registrar's office. Oh, just a point about the interrelation of the son and the state representative and the sheriff. There is a sense in Mississippi that everything is on a much more intimate scale yes. than in Alabama or Georgia, where we're talking about chambers of commerce and universities and yeah. governors. Everything is very intimate it's like they're, and they're small all here. Yeah. They're all neighbors, they're relatives, they know each other, and that colors things. It makes it sicker, in a way. So Kasten says, you know... What are you doing here? Moses? we're going to register to vote. And Kasten says, no, you're not. And he takes out the handle. He takes his knife out, takes the handle, and just starts beating Moses in the forehead. Um, and then Branch writes, in a mythical discovery even more vivid than the pain shooting through his head, Moses felt himself separated from his body as he staggered on the sidewalk. He floated about empty up into the air so that he could watch the attack on himself comfortably. His fears became as remote as Caston's grunts, and time slowed down so that he could hear Preacher Knox running away on the sidewalk before he saw Caston slapping and shaking him. In peaceful surrender, he saw Caston hit him again behind the right temple. He saw himself sink to his knees, Caston, and drive his face with into the pavement with crushing blow to the top of his head. Now, I have a question for you. Yes. And your capacity as a healthcare professional who's worked in uh, emergency departments. I've heard people talk about this out-of-body experience in terms of serious trauma or surgery or being in an emergency room. And here there's this description of Moses having, he must have recounted this to somebody. Do you have any idea why this happens to people in this state? I do not know other than whenever you're in an extreme stress situation, you have a flood of adrenaline and your body just kicks off this ton, ton, ton of adrenaline where I have had patients say that they don't even feel the shotgun bullet or the their hand or they're like, I've seen some pretty crazy things. And um, it's like a stress response. Mm. This particular thing of the out-of-body experience, um, I'm not super familiar with, but I know like adrenaline can be an extremely crazy drug in, its, in your body. And so he says, through waves of concussion, he finally hears, uh, he hears Dawson pleading with Cassin to stop the beatings. I really appreciate this. Uh, passage from Branch because first off it's grotesque but it's something that needs to be told and I'm glad the accuser is actually named because one of the problems I had in maybe I'm a vengeance uh, seeker here one of the things I hated so much about the Freedom Rides was like all the vict- all the, the, the mob, mob was the there mob. was no names to these people other than Bull Connor and like the but they weren't really inflicting the violence here we have in this chapter two people that if hell exists are clearly there for a period of time I mean, <laughs> everything is more intimate in Mississippi. <laughs> yeah. So thank you, Branch, for, for writing this and, and putting this out. Um, so, of course, Moses, this guy, this is where the, the, the sainthood. So I'm not religious, but now you think like maybe this guy is a saint because he gets up dazed, bloody. He's like, well, I got to go register to vote still. <laughs> we're still <laughs> registering people to vote. Dawson is overcome with horror. Like we're going to get killed. The sight of blood is flowing from the gashes of Moses head. Moses is like, we can't stop, you know, we got to head to the register's office and they're kind of, he goes in there, the, the clerk is horrified uh, at his clothes and the office is like, 
we're closed. We're, well, this is done. This isn't happening. So they head back to Macomb and go to Steptoe's farm, and people are freaked out, but there's no doctor there. So they go to this a nearby town, and an, a, another doctor that's down there volunteering actually puts nine stitches in his head. Okay, so horrifying there. And let me just take a break. Um, any thoughts on that, Gabe? Not much you can really say other than humanity is horrible. <laughs> that we'll see in a minute how this kind of violence serves a social purpose, which is uh, backed up by state institution. That in fact, it's as we know, but we we now have an example in the book of uh, racist violence being meted out. And it's sort of normative that that's how things happen in Mississippi, right? They haven't even put a piece of pa- a pen to a piece of paper. They haven't even got to that point, and they're getting beat or thrown in jail. Right. That this is how white supremacy functions. You have to do this from time to time. White men have to take things into their own hands and sort things out. And as we're about to find out, that that is normative and tolerated and... Uh, it's very strange when someone acts in defiance to it. It's 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 confusing to everyone involved, and yes. yeah, it's a, it's, it, it's, it's it's a hideous thing to sit and say. Well, that's normal, but without excessive um, commentary or moralizing, I think that um, Branch has just given us an illustration of what that's like. Caston is not even an official with any sort of government organization or anything. He's just a regular dude. He's a regular dude. He, of course, is related to people in law enforcement and people in politics. But he doesn't have to be ordered by someone in a high position. He doesn't need the clavern to give him a a directive. He's doing what he thinks is the right thing to do. What's his responsibility to keep things the way they should be? So while this occurred, I don't know if it's like simultaneously or within a day or two, the students in the city or in the town are motivated and they do, probably with the probing of um, some of the SNCC people down, they do a sit-in down at a Greyhound lunch counter. And of course that doesn't go well. And three people arrested, including Brenda Davis, who's a 16-year-old high school student. Um, And more branch just kind of mentions there's other kind of activity percolating across the South where there's some jail-ins. And now we're going to take a little musical break because we're going to get into the next thing, which is another frustrating but sad thing with NBC, not the broadcasting company, but uh, the National Baptist Convention. Let's just take a quick break, and then we'll get back. Are you going to come back to Macomb and we can talk about this doctor? Yep. Uh, I can... um. Because the doctor who, who puts the stitches, mm-hmm. um, because of that experience, he ends up giving his car to, to Snake. Do you remember that detail? Yeah, I don't know if I have that in there. Well, let's come back. When we come back to Macomb, remind me to say I'm gonna something I'm going to do the NBC, that. and then we're going back to Liberty. Okay, so we we'll, can... we'll, we'll come back. Because it's it's sort of... Um, I do remember that now, but it, I... It's, it's like a really gorgeous little Because example. it's like, he, he's like, okay, I'm down here to do this, and I'll do this for you. Yeah, I do. It's, and... That, of course, wouldn't, he never would have met that doctor if he hadn't had his head cut open. Right. He wouldn't have had his head cut open if he hadn't have brought people to register. And so by organizing, yeah. he creates a context in Dr. which... Pause more, that. All right, okay. All right. 
All right, so that was a great song by whoever it was. So maybe it was me, maybe it was a civil rights song. King is on vacation in Martha's Vineyard, but then he's got to go to this uh, convention, which on September 5th, 5th, the National Baptist Convention. They're nom- he, he's having this tension over giving a nominating speech for Taylor. Now, if you remember, J.H. Jackson is the president of the National Baptist Convention. This is the largest group of black Baptist religious folks. It's the, he's the leader of it. And we previously had uh, a fight in, was it Chicago or Philadelphia? I forget. Where Taylor, who's more sympathetic to the civil rights movement and the civil rights struggle and activism than J.H. Jackson, who is conservative, not interested in activism, and I think we can fairly just say is into just his own power. He doesn't seem to have any interest at all. Seems like a bad person. <laughs> uh, and if you look at their the modern-day website of the NBC, they kind of say that. They, they don't... He's not um, lauded and praised. He's been powerful a long time. Anyways, so there's this convention where they're trying to get uh, Taylor to get uh, power or, or win an election... And a big kind of convention fight breaks out where there's like a flying wedge of supporters. There's a storming of the convention. And then I don't know if it's what they call like the dais, but up on one of the platforms, one guy, because of all this, you know, loud ruckus and people moving out, slips off the 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 dais and falls down and bumps his head and slips into a coma. He actually dies a couple days later. Uh, King, while the guy's in a coma, is like, you know what? I don't think Taylor's going to win. And he decides not to make a second speech. And he really had a lot of hopes that the NBC could be turned into a vehicle for civil rights. And the conservative Jackson wins 2,700 to 1,500. Immediately, retribution to his opponents are swift. He strips people of titles. He strips uh, uh, Martin Luther King of his VP of Convention Sunday School, which is a big blow to King. And then he doesn't stop there. This awful person (laughs) says he blames Wright's death, which was an accident, uh, that he says King, he says this publicly, he says King mastermind the invasion of the convention floor, which resulted in the death of a delegate. And he says too many preachers have the cloth on the outside, but don't have the gospel on the inside. There are hoodlums and crooks in the pulpits today. I'm glad I'm saying this and his uh, name can be, <laughs> we can know that this is what this guy said about MLK. So the story makes it to the the New York times. It's not on the front page, but it's in there. And this infuriates King. And he wanted Jackson to retract his charges. And he consults a bunch of lawyers, uh, SLC, SCLC advisors. He sends a telegram to Jackson saying, Hey, as you know, my whole philosophy of life is social action and is one of love and nonviolence. And for one of, uh, and one to give the nation the impression that, I am little more than a hoodlum and reckless in a disregard for the lives and safety of persons I both see as libelous and the interest in my public image. I therefore ask you in Christian spirit to please retract this statement immediately and urge the press to give as much attention to the retraction as it gave the original accusation. Please send a copy of the retraction to my to me. I think by him even saying that at the end, it's like, you're not going to get that. Uh, Jackson did not respond, obviously, and then King is ostracized from the NBC. And Wyatt Walker kind of just says, you know, once the smoke was clear, the evil is once more strongly entrenched in the throne. And basically, I think we're done with the NBC. I don't think that's ever going to be play a, a role in these books again. We'll see. But thoughts on this, Gabe? Just sad. 
it's certainly sad. Um, it's sort of, I think, an important rupture of Martin Luther King Jr. from the institutions that people like his father had helped build and was invested in. Uh, his hope that he could, as you say, sort of turn the organized church into the main structure of the black freedom movement is uh, totally uh, destroyed. And his treatment by the sort of right wing, sort of small C conservative faction of uh, black leadership, some of the most important people in black America, not just turning on him, but trying to blame uh, a death on him. I think probably sets a path for him, which is going to be making his own organization and make his own way forward in the world. I mean, of course, he's already been doing that. Right. But uh, it, this must have been an excruciating time. The other aspect of it, which um, Branch seems to have a really good eye for, is the, the personal tensions that occur for King himself. Mm -hmm. Because even before the convention starts, he feels like his side, the progressive side, is set to lose. Yeah. And he's trying to find ways to that. avoid having to take responsibility for the defeat because he doesn't want it to reflect badly on the black freedom movement, which means he has to sort of decide between going and fighting and losing on behalf of his fellow um, pastor, uh, mm -hmm. Taylor, who is an advocate for, uh, for progress in the NBC. Um, but if he does that and keeps faith with them, um, then it could have bad implications, as indeed it did, for right. for uh, BSCLC. And so he has to choose between different interests that he cares about, different relationships that he has, uh, and it must have been excruciating. It's just so frustrating to see this because there's so many things stacked against the Black Freedom Movement, and then you have this large organization that a lot of people are part of that are participating and the leadership is saying no <laughs> we're not going to help we're going to like totally be disengaged from it and actually we're going to work to harm you mm -hmm. it makes you wonder if maybe the fbi was he was on the like i don't know hoover was giving <laughs> you know like a psyops type of thing i i don't think uh Jackson needed any pointers no, that's at a, all that's from the even, FBI that to makes it even worse. consolidate power. I mean, I thought White Walker's evil remains on the throne. I mean, it's a little hyperbolic, but it's pretty much right on, right? That yep. despite whatever efforts they made, despite whatever organizing they did, they were not able to overcome this. And by trying to uh, to sort of push and, and create a situation, there's a tragedy which then um, Taylor, uh, excuse me, uh, Jackson weaponizes. And the, I really, this is kind of a small piece in this chapter, and I maybe have spent too much time on it, but why I like this is because when you think about the civil rights movement and you think about Martin Luther King and it's the black preachers that were involved and Shuttlesworth and Abernathy, the largest, most important, well, maybe not most important, but the largest, most influential organization was on the sidelines. You know? Anyways. Well, well, the leadership was because sure. individual people were yeah. right. And, but let's let's be like ruthlessly honest. If, if if we were telling a story about some struggle in the labor movement, and we said, and many powerful people in the labor movement were not, we'd be <laughs> right. like, of course, that's not strange at all. No, no, I right? Know. Or if I this know. was uh, politics, we said the establishment of the Democratic Party wasn't on the side of progress. We'd of, be like, yeah, obviously. Of course, that union so, didn't support this. The only the, right, right. right. No. So I, I, it, it I, is uh, par for the course right. with it, struggle. It, it, it means that Charlesworth and Abernathy and King are more remarkable. Are more remarkable. Yeah. Okay, so let's go back to Liberty, 
which is next to Macomb. So we're kind of back in Macomb here. And I called this Liberty numbers many times trying to get some people on the phone and nobody would answer. So Freedom Rider Travis Britt and Moses go to the courthouse to try to register to vote. A thin man, this is like, I guess, attempt number three. A thin man, an old, a white thin man, uh, goes up shaking in uncontrollable rage and starts to pummel Britt. Moses tries to pull him out, but the old man keeps swinging, possessed of hatred, Branch writes. Hatred so intense that it seemed like he was, that it consumed what strength he had. And again, this is, um, it's, it's, a, it's like an echo of the initial violent confrontation, except here it's a man in his dotage. An, like, un- a, a, an a tiny, old man, yeah. thin, physically weak person who's very old, but he feels in his heart mm-hmm. that it's his duty as a white man to engage in violence against these black people trying to exercise their rights. And even though he's physically too right. weak to really hurt someone, he's still going to go, be go violent. crazy. So strange, so crazy. So two days later, Nashville freedom writer John Hardy, kind of a nerdy bookish pacifist, is uh, the way uh, Branch writes, goes with Edith Peters and Lucius Wilson. They're both in their 60s and they're owners of a sizable farm. They're a little more prosperous. So this, uh, they go to the uh, voter voter registration um, and the registrar is John Q. Wood. Uh, this is again episode 003 of Villains of History. <laughs> and Wood refuses to give the registration applications to Peters and Wilson. And Wood says, uh, John, I want to see you. And he walks briskly to his desk, pulls a revolver from his drawer, and he asks Hardy to leave. And as they're walking out, Wood strikes a roundhouse blow to the back of his head with, uh, with the butt of his gun. Peters and Wilson um, want him to see a doctor. Hardy's dazed and says, no, we have to report this. They report it to Sheriff Ed Kraft, and he comes running to meet them in the middle of the street, and here's how this goes. He denounces the, the Hardy, who was just beaten, says, what the heck are you doing down here? You shouldn't be down here. This is a big mistake. And instead of arresting Wood for assault, he arrests Hardy for disturbing the peace. Uh, and then, you know, word of lynch parties start to circulate in the community, as, you know, this kind of makes news in the small, intimate town, as Gabe mentioned. Um, and Kraft, the, 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 the sheriff actually sends Hardy to a further out county jail to try to avoid, like, confrontation and violence. So RFK, the Justice Department, you know, we got the 1957 Civil Rights Act. I feel like this is a violation. And I, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry to keep doing this, no, but I think it's really worth clocking these moments the sheriff who has taken three people into custody albeit under ridiculous uh charges what you were banging your head against the gun butt of uh, the registrar that's outrageous um (laughs) then has to move the prisoners because he thinks that men in the town will break into his jail take out the prisoners and and extrajudicially execute them this is something that a sheriff in mississippi has to think through and take action on because his jail the institution (laughs) of the state is not secure from people who want to take action ahead of uh the courts well put so we do have the 1957 civil rights act which is supposed to protect voting rights so the rfk of the justice department intervenes to block john hardy's trial it's it's scheduled for september 22nd um branch writes to challenge i like the way he writes this to challenge the right 
of a state to bring criminal prosecution under its own laws was both legally and politically extreme, not least because the circumstances required the federal government to endorse the testimony of a black witness against that of a white elected official. I mean, that I guess is true to say that that's extreme, but it's like also common sense. And of course you do that hindsight, you know, where we are now today. But this is where a friendly government is anemic or is not as much doing as it could. You know, it's a good thing, right? Sure. And this is a tiny case in a small little town. But in the grand scheme of things, I mean, is this a landmark case? Uh, we'll, we'll find out. So the lawyers of the Civil Rights Division found the federal voting rights connection so egregious, the beating of Hardy by the registrar and the indictment of Hardy so perverse that the case made a mockery of the federal government's power to enforce voting rights. John Doerr put the case for an emergency action before Burke Marshall. He's the head of the Civil Rights Division. He's the assistant attorney general. Is that a good signpost, Kate? Burke Marshall, head of the Civil Rights Division. Um, so this is, we're getting in the weeds of the law here, but Doerr gets in front of a district judge, Cox. And so Cox, who's the son of a sheriff who calls black people baboons, what's, what do you think Cox is going to say? He denies the motion to block the trial. Um, Marshall, to his credit, goes to Atlanta to try to use another technical legal strategy and is able to delay the trial. And I find this interesting, and I, there's, there, I guess there's historical reasons for it. There's two Eisenhower judges versus a Kennedy judge, and the two Eisenhower judges vote with the Kennedy, with Doerr, and says, okay, we can um, uh, pause this trial. And Branch mentions that this is going to be a pattern, that Ike judges turn out to be better than Kennedy judges. And I guess the reason for that, Gabe, is because Kennedy's a Democrat, and he's, you know, appointing Southern Democrats who tend to be racist, and there's maybe a, more, a little bit less of a... Um, a racial component to the Republican style judges that Mike was appointing at the time. I, I think that's right. It, if you think about um, the nominees for a president to appoint to the federal bench tend to be supported by the U.S. senators from that state, which means that it's practically impossible. Another way to say that, I think and especially in the 60s, I think this would be true, or the 50s, it really would be pretty much impossible um, for Kennedy as a Democratic president to nominate um, federal judges from the South who were not white supremacist yeah. supporters of segregation. Right. And so the only allies you can find in the courts <laughs> are people who would have been appointed by a Republican. And also, again, without digging into the backstory of who these judges were but also the republican party is not the republican party of the 21st century it's, right. the, it's not ideologically sorted right there's still there are liberals in the republican party and moderates and people who govern and, and grow up in places where there are black people who vote right so door and another staffer go to mississippi they meet with moses who they find hauntingly peaceful door sees for himself the steel un still the unhealed head wounds from billy caston the FBI, he's, Branch writes, kind of downplayed the beating, and after Doerr saw for himself what Moses looked like, he questioned the quality of the FBI reporting. Doerr finds out about Cassid and the Hearst family, uh, and Steptoe, you know, they're meeting. Steptoe is worried about himself and Lee. We didn't mention him yet, another important character, who has been helping Moses with voter registration. Herbert, Herbert Lee. Wait, let me jump in if I can. Yes. Just I wanted to zoom in on the head wound. Um, so two thoughts on yeah. on uh, Bob Moses's injured head. 
Doar's uh, realization that the FBI have not described the wound, they haven't had photographs attached to the file, it makes him think that they are, I think, dragging their feet, that they're not doing the work that they would need mm-hmm. to do to really describe what's actually actually happening, which makes the whole idea that the FBI reports and investigates and the Justice Department prosecutes, it really starts to undermine this idea that he can trust and rely on the FBI, right? So I think that's an important moment. For sure. The other thing I just wanted to raise here about the head wound is that there's a detail from um, after the uh, injury happens that um, Branch writes about how the doctor, the volunteer mm-hmm. who, who came down to Mississippi to help... Um, who has to treat Moses is so impressed with him that he gives his car to SNCC to use in the voter registration campaign. Right. And I thought it was a sort of a, a beautiful little example of how organizing can work, that by taking risks, in this case, incredible physical risks, um, and taking an action which at first doesn't seem to be a breakthrough – it makes connections and inspires other people to, to get take, more to take action. And, right. Yeah, the, doc, the doctor gives him a car. Yeah. Right. So Dor finds out about the casting in the Hearst family. Steptoe's worried about himself and Lee, who have been helping Moses. And Herbert Lee, another farmer, he has nine children. Wait, Herbert Lee's like a wood. He does stuff with logging, actually. Yeah, he, he cuts He's down uh, like pine trees and sells pine logs. Pine logs, yeah. So uh, Lee notices the white people are taking down license plate numbers of parked cars and says, you know, this isn't good, I think. You know, pass this along to Door and the FBI. So back to uh, Villains of History, mm. E.H. Hurst. And now he's a dairy farmer who's a state representative Democrat. He's actually neighbors and friends with Herbert Lee. And to get into a little psychology here, Lee and Hearst lived on adjoining farms. Like, they played together as boys. And I was thinking about this, because we're going to find out something horrible that happened, but, like, my son plays with kids in the neighborhood here, too. And can you imagine, just like, um, throughout their adulthood, they remained uh, good relationships. At one point, Hearst actually helped Lee apply for a loan for his farm. And, you know, they were, one was a white guy, one was a black guy. But Hearst's affections towards Lee changed when he started when Lee starts attending voter registration classes and driving Bob Moses around the county. His association with SNCC made him a target. So Representative Hearst was driving Billy Jackson, Billy Jack Casson's pickup truck, and followed Herbert Lee to a cotton gin and pulled up beside beside him. According to Hearst, why am I saying his side first? This is just so ridiculous. I'm going to say, okay, think about this, people. This is Hearst. This is what Hearst says. Hearst says, Lee moved to attack him with a tire iron. Okay, so the state representative driving his pickup truck, all of a sudden, a black man just comes up to him in broad daylight with a tire iron. Um, So that is why Hearst struck him in the head with his pistol, and Hearst says, uh, the pistol accidentally went off. So what we have here is Hearst murdered Lee in public. So Sheriff Caston arrives, so he, he murders him in public. Sheriff Caston arrives and finds a tire iron under Lee's body. Two eyewitnesses, one white and one black, say the same thing to the coroner's jury. And that same day, there's no trial. There's no um, 
there's no uh, charges at all. And the killing was ruled a justifiable homicide. Um, obviously, the versions of this event that Hearst is saying is 100% false. Um, so what really happened is uh, Hearst gets out of his car and he sees Lee. Lee sees him like waving a gun. And Lee's like, hey, man, I'm not going to talk to you when you're waving that gun. And then he gets really close to him and he shoots him right in the head. Oh, this is awful. So, you know, Mo Moses is located. So M Moses then takes action here and he, he gets the uh, witness, the, the, the one black witness, this Lewis Allen. This is another tragic story. He's a 42-year-old logger as well. Wait a minute. I'm actually getting things confused here. Let me just backtrack. Lee is a farmer. Lewis Allen is a logger. Okay. So L Lewis Allen's a logger. Uh, he's got a seventh grade education with three kids. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. You're, you're right. I yeah. was wrong. Yeah. He relied. So, so Lewis Allen is the guy, the, the black guy that said, yeah, uh, it was, there was a tire iron in him, but he did that basically because he had to. He relied on white men to fix up his papers for his work equipment and buy and lease timber tracks for him to cut. Allen told Moses that Lee didn't have the tire iron and Hearst shot him in the head a few feet away. Moses knew Lee would not have attacked anyone in the county's most powerful white men in public on a Monday morning. Moses didn't push Allen to recant and set the record straight, knowing his life would be in jeopardy. And Lee did very little with voter registration. I mean, Allen wasn't super active. I mean, okay, got to change that. So, you know, later in the chapter, we're going to find that, you know, Allen calls Moses and says, hey, uh, I don't want to lie again. You know, I, I do want to, I'll say what really happened if you can give me some federal protection. And Moses, sensing that, uh, not sure I can give that now that someone's been dead, says, you know what, stay quiet for now and let me assess. So he gets pressure, he pressures Dorr from the FDI to reinvestigate the Allen, reinvestigate the case. And Allen, unfortunately, does talk to the FBI. And the other, they also talked to the other white witness. And the white witness says, I never saw the tire iron. You know, that was completely made up. Uh, they put it under there after, you know, the body was, after he was dead. Um, but then the FBI and Dora says, like, you know, we're not going to go forward with this. And Moses knew it was too dangerous for Allen to testify in a grand jury. So he's like, just shut up. Like, don't engage anymore. But what's awful is that now people already know that Allen was talking with the FBI. Allen starts to lose business. He becomes a marked man. Moses is really pissed at the FBI and starts giving it real hard to door. And Branch writes about, like, you know, he says that, you know, Allen took this big risk and wasn't worth it. Door is trying, he kind of agrees, but he's trying to say, listen, we need to use the FBI, um, this bureau, in a smart way. These are Northern Catholics. They're not Southerners. They're always hated down here. They don't want to be embarrassed. We have to use them in a smart way. And um, I understand you're frustrated, but like this can be a tool. It doesn't really that line doesn't really go well with with Moses. And unfortunately, the damage is already done because you're going to find out later some bad things happen to Alan. Um, that was just frustrating and heartbreaking to read with Lee dying. And and then the other thing is Lee's widow accosts. Moses and being like, you did this, you know, and Moses is brokenhearted over it, of course. Um, thoughts on this whole ordeal? There's a lot going on. Just a, a couple reflections. Um, the idea that a, a 
middle-aged black farmer would attack a <laughs> state representative in, in broad daylight um, with a tire iron is like a cartoon. It's, like, yeah. Well, it, it's, it's, it's ridiculous and absurd on the face of it, but it's also, um, I think a component of the racial ideology of, of the South and, and certainly Mississippi about essentially black people being essentially animals that can behave wildly and Oh, okay. You yeah. have whether it's to attack women sexually or to attack men with violence, and the idea that this would—well, it's obviously a justifiable homicide. Uh, of course, the the dirty truth is you have to fix the crime scene to be able to demonstrate that. Uh, you have to place a tire iron under the body because there was no tire iron. But this is the story that people tell in the white community, and. It needs to be sort of replicated into the record of the court. Um, what's so uh, overt and it's like a novel. Mm -hmm. it's, it's almost too much to believe. It's a state representative who's doing the killing. Yeah. It's, um, it's... The, the, the other thought that, that uh, it, I thought about here was the, the men, the white men, taking down um, license numbers outside the Freedom School. And I think that connects back to the mention of the White Citizens Council. Yeah. We don't get so much information on this organized white racist group. but I, I, I think it's really important to how Mississippi functioned at this time. So, sometimes they get referred to as, as the Klan in, in suit and tie. But my understanding of the White Citizens Council is that it is... Um, it's a sort of a bourgeois organization of lawyers, doctors, hmm. businessmen, employers, um, maybe people with a little bit of education, education uh, and yeah. means. And what they serve to do, other than political campaigns and kind of ideological campaigns and replicating white supremacists, they also send messages about things like, this person is undesirable, don't hire them. Mm -hmm. This person is undesirable, don't buy from them. Right, so when the people in the county, the customers who bought the the pine trees, suddenly say, "We don't need your pine trees right. anymore," that's because somebody who's a part of a group like the White Citizen Council comes and tells them, or or sometimes they will publish something in a newsletter or in a leaflet to say this person has done this thing, and then everyone understands that we now need to effectively, uh, we we need to fire them if they're an employee, boycott them if they're a small businessman. Yeah, the White Citizens Council is kind of like a highbrow clan, a less violent but more powerful in a way. Or you know, so and and in a case like this, we see that actually the this the the butt end of the the gun or the bullet and the the message to say don't buy mm -hmm. the pine trees from this person who's engaged in voter registration. They they're really the left hand of the right hand of the same body. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Right. All right, I want to, we're going to get into the last kind of section of this chapter. Uh, let's take another musical break, and we're going to get into some high school talk and, what is it, nonviolent high? High, high nonviolence? Anyways, we'll be back in a minute.
Okay, so now we're going to talk about a high school principal and some problematic black institution. So students are going to jail for these sit-ins, and Principal Commodore Dewey Higgins uh, ends up taking some action on this. So black principals in segregated schools, branch rights, controlled scarce, precious commodities such as teaching jobs, diplomas and college, um, teaching jobs, diplomas and college recommendations um, so they could work in the school system. They had like an economic fiefdom as well as personally collecting the ticket receipts at school sporting events and other emollients uh, under franchise from the white school boards on the condition that they stifle ra racial agitation in the school. More than 100 students, actually, let me just pause here. They, this kind of reminds me of like the Black Preacher uh, the branch writes early, early on how school principal, black school principals kind of have a little bit more power and influence than a white, you know. Well, I, I thought of it a little bit differently. I thought of it more in common with uh, the universities like the, the, well, that the too, State that College well. in Alabama. Yeah. Because a, a church is a black institution which is not funded by or controlled by mm -hmm. The state, which is itself a um, sort of a part of the white supremacist power structure. However, someone who runs a public school, a segregated public school, but it's still part of the public school system of the state of Mississippi. So he does control this little world mm -hmm. with some resources and with some jobs, and he does have some status, but he can be replaced. And he's working for the man. That's yeah. right. So more than 100 students walk out of class in response to Lee's murder, essentially. And these kids are suspended. Now, Brian, if you remember, uh, you know, he's the man lending Moses the Masonic Temple. He's all of a sudden, you know, he's not happy about what's been going on. We were supposed to be some doing some voter registration. Now, all of a sudden, a farmer is dead in the wilderness. Uh, the registration is stalled Students are protesting and getting arrested and expelled or kind of suspended. And there's these walkouts. This was a far, you know, uh, cry from the kind of quiet, what do they say, shoe weather, shoe leather registration voting of the stuff that was supposed to be going on that the Kennedys envisioned, I guess. So the students made a spontaneous march to voter to the voter registration office and the Freedom Riders wanted to escalate. You know, they were like were tired of. You know, Lee's, Lee's getting killed. Moses um, is, uh, Moses, like, so Moses and McDoo, they go with the march. Um, they're arguing that the suspensions are probably, okay, hold on, I got lost. Moses is saying, let's calm down here. Maybe, the, you know, we think that these suspensions are just kind of pro forma by the black principal, and that this will be quietly revo revoked in a few days. But the movement of the people and the anger and the feeling is, no, we have to act, we have to demonstrate. So Moses is thinking, yeah, but if we put on this big public march, this might invigorate a more vigorous opposition from whites. We've already had enough violence. Maybe let's calm down. However, they end up going to the Macomb City Hall where they are greeted by a crowd of whites and police. Just to pause for a yeah. second here. I, I found myself smiling as I was reading this because I was thinking, well, normally it, uh, 
SNCC volunteers are the youth challenging the, their elders who are pastors, you know, people like Dr. King, who, yeah. are, who are barely eight or nine years. Now the shoe's on the other foot. Now the SNCC organizers are being challenged and led forward by high school students. By even, yeah, by even younger, yeah. So the students go down, and what do they start to do that's so egregious that why they deserve to be arrested? They start praying. One by one, they start getting arrested. Then finally, they just arrest every single person. It's like 119 people, including Brenda Davis, who was uh, uh, arrested earlier. I don't know why I don't have a bio on her. Well, maybe I have to return to that. Um, the authorities are excited about this arrest. They po- throw everybody in jail. Um, C.C. Bryant is also arrested. And he's like, what? Like he, he, they, they actually seek him out. This is the other surprising thing. This is how egregious this is. He's not down there. The next day they go to him as the NAACC uh, president of the local chapter. And they figured, oh, you're behind this. So you're arrested as well. Um, and then they arrest uh cordial region. Uh, am I saying his name right? And Charles Sherrod, Charles Jones. If you remember the three Charles, Charles was from a previous chapter. Charles Jones is the only one not arrested, and he's like getting freaked out that he's going to be killed, which he should be. And he puts on, uh, he's at the, he's like at a butcher shop or near the uh, Masonic temple, and he puts on a blood smeared smock to pass off as a butcher. And he alerts uh, news services about what's going on, and he actually calls, do you remember who he calls? He calls two people. I think somebody you met before. Maybe not. Did you meet Harry Belafonte? Did you tell me a story about him? Um, maybe you saw him sing. I don't know. Harry Belafonte. He calls Harry Belafonte and John Doerr. And Doerr actually comes down and meets with him. And he, they're like worried about the clan. They're like, my God, this is really escalating. The, the arrest of C.C. Bryant really energizes his support for the students. Um, and he actually becomes the focus of a, a newspaper article. And he's quoted as saying like, where the students lead, you know, I'm going to follow. Brenda Davis is indefinitely expelled and sent to reform school. And Moses McDew and Zellner, Zellner is a, a white guy that was beaten by the mob. I don't know if we talked about him. Uh, he's He was pending, they're, they're, they're pending trial for disturbing the peace. And Harry Belafonte sends $5,000 for bail. Uh, let's just pause here because this is just, again, uh, an example of white supremacy or white power. They really didn't do anything uh, egregious here. It was just like a, a simple demonstration, and the, this, the police just, just decided to totally escalate and throw everyone in jail, um, which I guess is par for the course in this neighborhood and what's happening here in September of 1961. The day after Herbert Lee... Any, you wanna, okay. The day after Herbert uh, Lee is murdered, King... Let's kind of shift gears here. King is at an SCLC three-day conference with James Farmer and John uh, Lawson. And uh, they're basically saying, let's not extend the freedom rides. And Lee's murder really dampens the enthusiasm for direct action. Also hanging over them at the time, if we go back, there is this very, very expensive libel case against King. Uh, It's a libel case that Governor Sullivan has with the New York Times. Um, and they were supposed to have a big celebrity fundraiser with Harry Belafonte and other singers to, to raise money for it. But Belafonte actually gets sick and he can't attend. And they actually lose a bunch of money on just like prepping for the actual event. So because of the, the, the arrest and the violence that occurs, 
King sends an email to Kennedy complaining about this reign of terror. <laughs> a telegram, okay? Those guys, telegrams were the first email, okay? So he sends a telegram, which I didn't really get this, why it was such a big deal. And it kind of pisses me off, but the press somehow get a hold of it. And, the, and Kennedy finds it like very disrespectful so much so that King and Kennedy were like, oh, okay, okay. Walker has to apologize and takes the blame. The, the reason it was disconcerting to the Kennedy administration is that it got talked about in the media before they received it. Okay. Like, okay, don't get your uh, whatever in a bunch, guys. Come on. People are getting killed here. Meanwhile, the worst man in history, Herbert Hoover, which is not true. He's not the worst man. He's just part of our... Villains in history, we'll have to do a show on that. He's pushing this narrative. I think uh, you mean J. Edgar Hoover. I, <laughs> I wrote that down. You know, that's funny. I, I Sometimes I, I got to edit these. I got to look this over because I said Captain Crunch earlier. I, I caught that typo. I don't know why I said Herbert Hoover. Herbert Hoover wasn't the worst, actually. He's not really a villain. Um, J. Edgar Hoover. <laughs> J. Edgar Hoover, head of the FBI forever. He's pushing this narrative. This is really cool by King. I love this part. He's pushing this narrative hard that Stanley Levinson is a Soviet spy and a Communist Party member. He's uh, floating this up to like the Kennedys, RFK, JFK, Harrison Wolfert. He's pushing this to Harrison Wolfert, who really doesn't buy it, but he's telling King. And remember, I think it's Harrison Wolfert. Wolfert. He's the liaison, essentially, between um, uh, the civil rights king and uh, the Kennedys. He's saying, hey, listen, man, they think that uh, there, there's all this information that Levinson's a communist and he's a spy and he's going directly to the Soviets. And King is like, you know what? I don't care. This is ridiculous. You know, I'm not hearing any of it. It doesn't matter. Talk all you want. It, I know this person and it's just cool. It, it sounds like he's basically giving the finger. And I mean, I don't know what King says, but. It has no impact on his respect for Levinson, and he's like, nope, Levinson's cool. Am I wrong? So uh, Branch does, a, I think, a really good job of showing how King is shocked, but then actually— yeah, he's like, no, not him. Well, he, he tries to interrogate it with Walford, and Walford can't actually explain it. All he can say is the evidence is secret. This is what they think. Because— be, it's so secretive uh, and so sensitive to national security that I can't tell you. And, and in, the truth is he doesn't know because the person who told him used the same argument with him. And it it's, turtles all the way down to the president of the United States and, and Robert Kennedy. The, and, of course, this is what's great if you get to run the security service mm -hmm. of a country that you can say there's this secret dangerous thing that I can't tell you about because the sources have to be protected. But believe me, I'm right about this. And I think it, it comes down to the way Branch writes it. Do I have more reason to trust and respect Levison or J. Edgar Hoover? And I don't have to think very hard about that. Of course, it's going to have consequences right. uh, for King going forward. But it, it's quite a thing in this day and age, in the early 60s, to sort of look the White House in the eye and say, I'm going to disregard your concern <laughs> right. about national security. Right. I don't care. Yeah, that's why it's like badass. I don't know. I, I thought that was cool. And then King, I'm not going to go so much into this. King meets with JFK. 
has a pretty good conversation. He is trying to argue for the second Emancipation Proclamation because it would be 100 years after Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. And the main tenet of the second Emancipation Proclamation will be to outlaw segregation. And JFK is like, okay, like, give me a proposal on that. Let me see it. And he's like, okay. And he's like, hey, you want to tour the White House? Here's the, here's the kitchen and the bedroom and the, and the reading room. Oh, okay. Hey, cool, man. Okay. Oh, is this one of my favorite parts coming up? Okay. Who's grandstanding? Who thinks the students are grandstanding? I was thinking of you when I read this, Gabe, because this is, we're back to Moses being a saint, a weird saint. So is Moses, or oh, Bob Moses, a weird saint? So there's this SNCC, SNCC Atlanta meeting, all gathering there. I, th- I have been in meetings like this. As a student activist going back 20 years, union meetings, blah, blah, blah. People are making statements on their belief in nonviolence and why SNCC is so important. This is going on. They're, they're, they're kind of rallying themselves or sharing. Moses halts the proceeding by declining to speak. He's like revered, super respected dude, got his head beat in, like quiet guy. He doesn't, doesn't seem like a mean guy at all. People love this guy. He wanted to get back to work. <laughs> That's why I like him. And But he thought the students were grandstanding. Branch writes, he thought they were trying to surpass one another in eloquence. He, he says he was a mystical purist. He remained, but then, so I like this about him, but then he remains aloof from the pure, for the more pragmatic functions of organization, fundraising, discipline, publicity. He was like more into uh, moral leadership. And he he says, he makes this joke. Branch isn't super funny, but I thought this was funny. He says, uh, he was oppressed by the trivia of ordinary life. I know somebody like this, that it's like all just the movement and activism and stuff like that. And you know, tying your tie and putting a shirt on and hanging out and doing social stuff is like, why would you do that? You know, um, it's good that there are people like this, but it's also, it's weird. He has this uh, moment in this description where he writes that Bob Moses is, you know, viscerally averse to dominating anyone with yes. his persona. Yep. Which made me think about scenes like the one that's described here that I, I've been in with organizers who are talking about why they do the work mm-hmm. and literally stand on your chair and talk about why you do the work, the work being organizing. And people are trying to outdo each other. People are trying to tell a story about themselves or something they've experienced. And I have absolutely known organizers and leaders of organizers who dominate other people with their presence. So Bob Moses, who is exquisitely sensitive to human freedom, human power, withholds himself from doing this. And in doing so, makes himself an even bigger bigger figure, looming and defining the idea of what it is to be an organizer in the movement. I'm sympathetic to this because I don't like this kind of sentimentality. However, it probably is good for people to recharge and hear these stories and kind of whatever self stuff. But I don't I, I do recoil a little bit from like why uh, this is important and why we do this. But so he ranch writes that like he came to be the image of SNCC, the kind of priest who chooses to isolate himself deep behind the lines of se- segregation for years at a time, armed only with nonviolence. SNCC the myth. 
borrowing from early Christianity and the labor movement would focus on the, quote, organizer, quote, who cared nothing for recognition, who would meet rejection. I love this part. Who would meet rejection by cheerfully shaking the dust from his feet and moving on to another outpost. <laughs> uh, and then Branch writes it like grassroots becomes a popular term in the 60s kind of by, by what's been going on here. Okay, so back in Macomb, the students are pressuring Principal Higgins. Te- tensions are high. He was refusing for them, he was refusing them to go back to school unless they signed these pledges to refrain from activism. Uh, so students weren't doing that. They're like holding out. And then SNCC creates uh, these, you know, college kids or people that are out of college, whoever, they create a new school called Nonviolent High taught by essentially higher probably educated teachers than the ones that were in the, than the principal Higgins school. Um, and so that goes on for a couple days or I don't know, a couple weeks, but eventually some students do surrender. And then SNCC works out some arrangements with the local college to get uh, a black college to get some students in there. Um, but then the entire faculty of Nonviolent High goes on trial on October 31st for the for those protests, the, that prayer protest, essentially on October 4th. Um, quick trials of uh, Moses, McDew, and Zellner and 15 others are sentenced to prison uh, for four to six months. And sadly, this is the end of the chapter, guys. So, you know, what ends up happening is these people all go to jail uh this is kind of the end of the movement in macomb for now what we understand local whites are now talking about all these people in prison and in the local prison and saying that uh these are all the communists you want to go down there's bob moses look at him it's like a zoo-like atmosphere for him kids are coming down like dad let me see a communist i hear they speak a different language charles mcdew um i guess speaks through the, the, the jail bars or whatever and, and, and shouts out some Yiddish just to like poke fun. They're making... Um, the, say something in communist. Say something. Yeah, say something in communist and he says something in Yiddish. They're, you know, they're playing chess with old matchsticks and uh, just trying to pass the time. And uh, that's the end of the chapter. But what I wanted to highlight is you kind of have two institutions this chapter that are um, disappointing, I guess. The, the, the school chap, the, the school principal, not helpful. I guess he'd have to go against the power interest of the, the white power structure and obviously the NBC um, two blows. And we don't really have a lot of victories in this chapter other than another notch of uh, another battle wound. <laughs> you know, some, some lessons learned. And, and, a, and a martyr. And a martyr, for God's sakes, yeah. And we learned some more... Uh, some villains too with um, Caston and, and Hearst. But what's this is a turning point, I think, in the civil rights movement. This is almost like this could be like if he broke par- reading part, if he broke parting the waters into two different books, I think this one would be like this is the beginning of trying to get the vote. Because we don't really have a lot of that prior to this. And this is four freaking pathetic little incidents of trying to just go to an office and people are beaten or killed. One's killed not even going there. Uh, and so it, it's going to be interesting to see how the Kennedys respond and what goes forward after this because um, it's... So we're at the almost end of 1961. Uh, and if you look at any civil rights timelines, 
there's actually not a lot of stuff in 62. It's like 63 things start to peak up. So I'm gonna, it's going to be fascinating well, what, what Branch is going to do and what we're going to talk about at the end of this year in, in 1962. But any um, uh, final thoughts, Gabe, to, to round out this chapter? Although there hasn't been any great breakthrough, there's not a victory like um, the city of Montgomery having to, you know, back down after losing a court case, you know. What we do have is a movement that's taking hold, that's inspiring people in Mississippi to take great risks. Um, and the movement has not blown away. The movement has not uh, disappeared. And someone like Bob Moses is, is gaining stature and, and moving people to come to Mississippi to work with him, which of course will become a bigger and bigger part of the story as we go forward. And I'm going to give a little teaser, something I've never done before, but you're going to see in the next episode a police and white power structure that act very, very differently um, because we're going to be moving to Albany. And maybe because it's in the north, Albany, New York. <laughs> Gabe, I tricked him. He thought I... He thought... <laughs> Gabe, oh, God, that was fun. I mean, I did say Herbert Hoover earlier. <laughs> I did jo- say... John Brad- L. Lewis. I did say John L. Lewis and Herbert Hoover. But we're going to be moving to Albany... Uh, is it Georgia? Georgia. Georgia. And uh, we're going to spend some Christmas time there. Um, so get ready for that episode. And all right. Thanks for listening. Bye.